It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. The Trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. SBF thinks he's the smartest guy in the room and continues to this day to think so. I think he thinks he's smarter than, than his lawyers. I'm sure his lawyers told him this is not a good idea to get on the stand, but it's, you know, it's, it's his right as a, as a defendant to, to get up and face his accusers and, and defend himself under the Constitution. He has that right. Welcome back to the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. I'm your host, Kelly O'Grady from over at Fox Business. So we are in the home stretch of the trial, folks. Testimony has wrapped. We're in the midst of closing arguments and the jury is expect to, expected excuse me, to take up the case this week. So let me do a recap. Apologies that it's longer than normal and I'm monologuing here, but there has been a lot that has happened inside that courtroom. So since our last episode, Sam Bakeman freed he endured another day on the stand as the prosecution laid into him. He continued to say he couldn't remember key interviews or conversations, kind of seemed to crack under the pressure a bit. Uh, the prosecutors moved beyond that active media schedule we told you they focused on uh, to really hone in on some of the inaction at home. They harped on two things about his role at Alameda. First, that he claimed despite being the CEO, he was unaware Alameda employees were using FTX customer funds. And the second thing, was that he didn't do anything when discovering that an $8 billion shortfall in customer assets existed. No one was fired. No questions were asked about who did it. When pressed by prosecutors, Bankman Freed said he wanted to fix the problem rather than assign blame. Now that makes you question, right? Well, you claim you didn't know about the company taking customer money and you didn't think you should figure out who made that decision. So that was a little bit of a head scratcher of a moment. Uh, the prosecution, they also showed more Google metadata. Remember, we talked about that last time, uh, proving SBF indeed accessed certain spreadsheets he claimed to have never seen. Uh, that may have been the closest thing to a smoking gun we've seen in the case throughout. Now, SBF conveniently regained his memory uh, on redirect as the defense really sought to perform some damage control. But the day kind of finished really flat. Uh, it was a strange 180, potentially for a juror wondering, why there appeared to have been two versions of Sam Bankman freed on the stand. Now, closing arguments, they began today. There were some of the most dramatic movie-like moments of trials where each side lays out their narrative. They get to make their case one last time to the jury. And throughout this, the prosecution has sometimes been in the weeds during the majority of the trial. I've been wondering if the jurors uh, will believe the testimony of cooperating witnesses. Remember, they've all pled guilty to fraud. Um, as well as grass, sometimes murky terminology. I will admit, it felt, though, that SBF's testimony, his Hail Mary decision to get on that stand, really breathed new life into the government's case. They frequently used his words against him, almost like a puzzle piece that really stitched their narrative together cohesively today. Now, they went through six times where he could have come clean. He doubled down, though, on allegedly misleading the public, investors, and spending, this was a great quote uh, from the prosecution, they said, quote, like he had won the lottery. Now, uh, at the time of recording this, uh, the defense has just begun closings. They're in there right now. Uh, they're trying to undermine the prosecution's picture of SBF as a monster. Uh, but are they going to be successful? Next episode, we will be sure to break that piece of things down for you. Uh, but right now, I want to bring in Bruce Dubinsky, the founder of Dubinsky Consulting. 
He's a forensic accountant, and he has been an expert witness in countless of high-profile cases like these, uh, including most recently uh, the Joe Biden, uh, President Joe Biden impeachment inquiry and the Bernie Madoff fraud trial. So, Bruce, welcome. Thank you for spending some time together with us today. Kelly, great to be here with you today. So I'm really excited to chat with you uh, because you have such expertise in this area, right? You understand how investigators in this type of case put all of this information together, you know, found the data, unwound this confusing industry. So can you just start by giving me a taste of what goes into crafting the type of case we saw during this trial from the prosecution? Sure. So at the beginning of a trial like this, the prosecution has to make a determination on how they're going to try the case. In other words, are they going to get into the weeds and get into technical jargon and, and possibly confuse the jury? Or is their case pretty straightforward and, can, and a story can be told and they can weave that story together uh, in order to make their point and hopefully get a conviction? That, that's what they're trying to do. In this case, I think the prosecution made the right decision. They tried not to get down into the weeds. I mean, they had to at some point. But, but the story was uh, people put their money in FTX for crypto. Sam Bankman-Fried stole the money. Alameda used the money uh, at his direction. And when the, when the, uh, when the money was, was gone, uh, he didn't do anything about it when he found out about it, like you said in, in the intro today. I think that's the story that the prosecution wanted to stick with. And I think they've done, done a great job doing that. Um, and, and when you have a story and you have three co-conspirators that had already pled guilty in this case, you got Ellison, Wang, and Singh, they helped tell that story. And so I think that's very powerful for the prosecution and very difficult for the defense to deal with, as you saw in, in when those three people testified, as well as when Sam Bankman-Fried testified over the last few days. You know, um, I, I love that you, you know, kind of laid that out for us, because uh, I will admit there were times where I felt like, oh, you know, are they getting too into the weeds? I will tell you, Bruce, there were a couple of jurors where their eyes were starting to flutter close. <laughs> and I'm going, no, wake up. This is important stuff. Because uh, you know me, I'm, I'm a nerd about all these things. Uh, but it, it did feel when I listened to closing arguments today and the prosecution just laid it out one after another. You know, you've heard the testimony from his co-conspirators. You've seen the spreadsheets and the messages and such um, that it was hearing it all together laid out like that was really powerful. And there was actually one line um, right towards the beginning of, of the prosecution. Of course, you know, these are always very theatrical. Uh, but the the attorney said he knew he was taking uh, customer money. He knew it was wrong and he did it because he felt he was smarter than everyone. And then, and then the guy looks directly at the jurors and he goes, quote, that stops with you today. And I was like, Oh wow. Yep. You know, the, that, that was, that was really, um, the, the buildup there was, was really impressive. That being uh, that, said, that, yep. go ahead. No, I was going to say that that's a, that's a great way to present it to the jury. You always hear people talking about juries having a seventh grade education that is not the case. I've testified in 80 trials and, and half of those have been in front of juries. Wow, they are very smart. Uh, don't let them fool you when they're closing their eyes, because many times they're closing their eyes just thinking back in memory. Did I hear something? Mm. Did I hear it right? They're not really sleeping. I, I, I have been in one jury, uh, one trial where the judge had to nudge somebody. The, you know, the bailiff went over and nudged him. He was dozing off. But, um, you know, these are long trials. There's a lot of evidence to, to take right. in. 
And when they sit there and close their eyes, most of the time they're paying attention. And, um, and they, have, they are very smart. They may not have, some may have PhDs, but many may not. But let me tell you, they've got street smarts and they can smell a rat. Mm. And what the, what the prosecution was doing there is saying, hey, this guy's going around telling you he's smarter than everybody else. Don't let him fool you. You're pretty smart. You can figure this out. And I know you will figure it out. And that's what the prosecutor was doing. I think it's a brilliant move. I agree that that moment where you you paint this guy as and they, they even said it in, in the closing arguments, you know, he's an MIT graduate. Do you really believe he doesn't he doesn't remember any of this stuff and kind of the juxtaposing of that allegation that he thinks he's smarter than you? That is, I, I felt like that was very powerful because if I'm thinking sitting in a juror's box, you know, these customers are like me. They were taken in. You know, I need to to get them justice potentially, right? That's what the prosecution wants them to think. That being said, Bruce, I want to get your take on this because what I think we were all expecting to see during the prosecution's case was the undeniable screenshot. Um, you know, of, of Sam Bankman Freed saying, you know, Ellison, take the customer's money, right? Um, because the prosecution didn't offer the defense a deal. And so everyone was saying at the beginning of this, oh my gosh, they've, they've got to have an, an open and shut case. And so there hasn't surprisingly been that moment. I will get to the metadata in a second because I know you're going to have a lot to say about that. Right. But so much of the communications and those different things were auto-deleted. Sam says because of security reasons, of course, the prosecution says because he was trying to cover his tracks. So in your experience, can you opine on how, uh, you know, the, the company ended up in this type of situation? Have you seen things like this before when you've testified in trials where, you know, a, a lot of the evidence is just simply missing that we expected to see? I have. You don't have to look too far back to the, the Bernie Madoff criminal trial when the, um, the, the five insiders were tried in, in the same very same courthouse as Sam Bankman Freed. Um, and I was the government's expert on that case. We had a lot of missing information. We had to go through and, and, and piece together that there were emails that were deleted, um, iPhones that had been wiped clean. There was a lot of that that went on. And, and you start to question yourself, why was somebody doing that? If you and I are running a, mm. a normal business, we're not going to set up our, our, our messaging, our email to auto-delete. In fact, most businesses are required to have a document retention policy for, for legal purposes and compliance purposes. So the very fact that you said you, know, you were expecting to see a smoking gun and you didn't see that one email that said, hey, Caroline, you know, take the money, don't tell anybody this is Sam, and you know, we'll run off into, into the distant and the sun will go down on us, you're not going to see that because- one, he was smart enough not to put that in writing. And two, if he had put anything like that in writing, it would have been auto-deleted. Um, the government did get some Slack messages that, that you know, survived and weren't auto-deleted. But in the days, you know, the months leading up to it, that, that auto-delete had, had a big, big factor in it. But I will tell you, uh, Kelly, I think there was a smoking gun. I think the smoking gun that, that we saw were the three co-conspirators who have already pled guilty, get up on the stand and tell the truth and tell the story. You know, criminal trials are all about credibility. I mean, civil trials too, but, you know, I've been in a lot of criminal trials. It's all about the big C. We talk about it all the time. Are you credible on the stand, either as an expert or, or a fact witness? In this case, you had the three co-conspirators. They were fact witnesses. They were there at the time, right? They were involved and, and they got up. So what's their credibility? And then you got uh, Sam Bankman-Fried that gets up and testifies 
I think it was 140 times I counted, he couldn't recall a conversation or couldn't recall something going on. Um, you know, he's the captain of the ship, right? You said he's the CEO of FTX. He needs to know. For him to get up and say, I, I can't recall, I don't know, the, the big C, the big credibility just gets gets erased. He answered the questions to prosecutors. The, the answer was, yup. 355 times I counted in the transcripts. He was agreeing with the prosecutors 355 times. I can imagine that the, the defense counsel were just squirming in their seats. But I think that smoking gun where the three co-conspirators, once the government knew they had those people, they could change the direction of the case. They didn't need to go into the weeds. It was about telling the story. How did they do it? How was the code manipulated, the computer code? Who was involved? And then the jury's got to make a decision. Do they believe those three co-conspirators plus the other people that testified? Or do they believe the one person on the other side, Sam Bankman-Fried? I think the jury's going to come down and find Sam Bankman-Fried guilty on all, if not all, most of the counts that, that he was charged with. I normally try and, and stay uh, you know, um, a true journalist until the end and not tip my hand. But I, I do agree with you here. I mean, after listening to all the testimony and how everything was laid out today and, and how the prosecution just railed at him yesterday. I was very impressed with the assistant U.S. attorney, Danielle Sassoon. She just kind of dressed him down, um, not not in an overly aggressive way, but right. you know, like you said, 140 times he said he couldn't remember. I mean, she kept teasing that out. And you hear that when you're a juror, you're going, OK, well, you know, you're you're the the CEO and, and you didn't even think to ask, OK, well, <laughs> what the eight billion dollars go. But we're sitting here going, well, that's because you already knew, right? Because uh, it, it's you. And of, of course, that's what the, the prosecution wanted everyone to think and, and leap to from there. I mentioned the metadata, though. Yep. And this was a moment for me where I was like, oh, that's it. That's there. And so for, for folks, um, you know, that, that weren't hanging on every bated breath of Sassoon's uh. Uh, cross-examination like I was, what happened is multiple times uh, she asked him, well, you know, did you see the spreadsheet? Or as we've talked about before, Caroline Ellison testified that Sam Bankman-Fried asked her to create multiple versions of a balance sheet so he could pick which one to send to investors. If that is indeed the case, right. that's fraud right there. Investors and lenders, excuse me. And he claims, well, I only saw the final version and she sent it to me, so it's all her fault. And there's there was this great multi-minute, um, you know, discussion. And Sassoon says, you know, well, you know, we have the metadata from Google that shows that you viewed the spreadsheet that had multiple tabs with all of the different versions of the balance sheet. Right. So, what did you you think when you heard that moment? And then, kind of more broadly what kind of role does does metadata play into a trial like this? When I first heard that and, and saw the testimony, um, the credibility star went to, to Ellison, right? Because now her, right. her testimony is corroborated by something that the prosecutors aren't just making up, they have proof of. And I'll explain metadata in a second. What it did to SBF on the other side, it gave him you know, a, a negative star in his credibility column. And it's all about credibility at the end of the day because the jurors won't understand the the nuances of, of a lot of what went on, but they, they are good judges of character. And once they believe somebody's lying, you're done. 
And I think, like I said, they'll conclude mm. SBF was lying on us. What is metadata? Metadata is a digital fingerprint. So every time you create a document on your computer, there are art, what we call uh, digital artifacts that are left on the computer that you can't see when you open a Google spreadsheet or a Excel or a Word document or what, whatever document it may be, an Adobe document. You can't see that, but through the use of special software, computer forensic software, we can see those artifacts. We can see who last opened the document, the date and time. Did they make changes to the document? Um, we can see what computer it originated on. Uh, maybe if it was transferred through an email, what IP address it originated on from another email or another computer. So it's like the old days of fingerprints on a door frame when they came in, in, in the crime movies. They, you know, they pulled out a, a kit and, and took out and dusted for fingerprints. Many people remember that if you're, if you're old enough. Um, and they still have of some of that technology. This is digital t digital fingerprints. And, and you know, how do you refute that at that point? Sam Bankman-Fried couldn't refute it. He didn't say, well, maybe he said it at that point, I'd have to go back and look at the transcript. I, I don't remember looking at it. Maybe I did. But his credibility went down, down the drain at that point. I used the same data in the Bernie Madoff criminal trial against the five insiders. We had documents that they had created on, their, uh, uh, on the computer using Microsoft Word. I knew the date and time, yet it was created after the fact. So I could prove, you wow. know, after the fact, they went and created these documents and backdated things. And that was, you know, key to putting in front of the jury how they perpetrated the fraud. So I think it's, it's very key. I'm, I'm surprised. Look, being, you know, from SBF coming from MIT, having a degree, you know, uh, being a geek, so to speak, and he labels himself as a geek, how he could not anticipate that they would have metadata and how his lawyers could not anticipate that is beyond me. And maybe the lawyers knew it. And, you know, sometimes you're dealt a bad hand and you have to play that hand. And I think this time uh, defense counsel was dealt a pretty bad deck of cards, not just a hand, but the full deck. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. He has labeled himself as a math nerd at the very beginning of the defense's closings. Before I hopped on with you, they were saying, you know, the, the prosecution is trying to paint this math nerd as a movie villain. And something like that, uh, you know, of course, before this whole trial, I hadn't heard of metadata, but but certainly Sam Bankman-Fried would have. So it is it is that moment where it feels like he was so careful about covering his tracks on allegedly covering his tracks. Right. The, the verdict isn't out there yet um, of deleting messages, of not putting things in writing, of following the New York Times test uh, as he has mentioned before, you know, don't put anything in writing that you don't want right. on a New York Times headline, which admittedly, when I was in business school, well, they, they gave that to us as a rule too. Sure. So it's not just SBF that has it. It's oh, basically, look, that's good you know, advice. The, the right. difference here is, the difference is Sam Bankman-Fried was not an experienced fraudster. He got into this mm -hmm. and wherever it went sideways, it went sideways and the, and, and the fraud, you know, perpetrated from there. So when you look at serial fraudsters, and I've dealt with many of those over my career, they are much smarter and they will think about those things. But in the end, they always miss one or two items and that's what trips mm -hmm. them up. And, you know, it's very hard when you're perpetrating a fraud to cover all your tracks. Think about when you were a kid just telling a little white lie. Who did I tell it to? What did I exactly say? Are my parents going to find out? 
I mean, this is not a little white lie. This is a massive you know, set of lies. How do you keep all that together? And it's very, very difficult to do so. It's hard to find every tiny little thread. And, and certainly the, the metadata in this case is one of those pieces that at least if I were a juror, is going to stick in my mind. I thought that moment, yeah. to your point, was very powerful on the stand when she kept going around and around. You really don't remember? You really don't remember? Well, by the way, we, we have the evidence that you did actually access these, these sheets. I also want to get your take on how crypto plays into all of this. Because uh, for, for folks um, that you know, ha- haven't seen Bruce on FBN before, I've worked with him a lot going back a year to when this whole case started. And you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the crypto angle of it. And a lot of folks, you know, were saying, oh, you know, how difficult is it going to be to find evidence because crypto is is so untraceable? You know, as we've learned in, during this trial, you know, that's not necessarily the case because of the blockchain being essentially this digital public ledger, public ledger. where transactions right. are made. Um, you know, but also you've said to me before, you know, fraud is fraud. And that's really what they needed to prove out here. Not necessarily that crypto was, uh, you know, crypto or cash fraud is fraud. So how do you think that part, though, played into the investigation and the forensic accounting part of it? Well, I think initially people didn't know where to focus on. Probably they got in there and, and, and like you said, they're thinking crypto, this is complicated. How are we going to follow the, the trail of it? But at the end of the day, you know, there is a public ledger, the blockchain ledger. So there are you know, records uh, that cannot be altered um, of how the, the crypto moves. And then when you convert crypto back into a fiat currency, whether it's U.S. dollars or another currency, then you're back into bank accounts and, and wire transfers and the like. So all of that can be traced. And I think the prosecution was smart in deciding this. We're not going to play this as a crypto case. We're going to play this as a fraud case. You, you gave him money. He was supposed to keep it and safeguard it for you. That's what FTX's role was supposed to be. They didn't do that. And in fact, he stole the money and he knowingly stole it. And then he used it. And he doesn't didn't care when he found out there was a shortfall. He just said, well, it is what it is. Like you said at the top of the, the show, he didn't move to fire anybody or do anything. So that was their sim- simple story on it. I think had they taken a different route, it might have been more complicated in talking about crypto I mean, they needed to educate the jury about what crypto was and the blockchain, sure. but they didn't need to get into the, 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 the deep weeds of that. You know, the accounting professor that, that uh, Peter Easton that spoke, he didn't get anywhere near that. He talked about, hey, on the balance sheet, there, there was a big gap between the money that Alameda really truly owed back to FTX and the customer money. And where was it? Well, it had been spent. It wasn't there. That, that was his role. So I think, you know, anytime you have things like NFTs or crypto, um, or even in the, in the Madoff case, he had this um, this idea of split strike conversion strategy. The mystique surrounding it certainly confused people. When you peeled the window back, you know, peeled the curtain back, so to speak, on it on all of these, it's money in. Where did the money go? And and what happened? And did somebody defraud other people? You know, both both this case and the Madoff case have a lot of similarities. Um, they both stole a lot a lot of money from customers, both Madoff and, and Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, assuming he's convicted, but I think he will be. Um, they used the money to fund lavish lifestyles. I don't even think SBF denied that on the stand. Um, 
Oh, it was know. hard to when they showed the the picture of him napping on the private jet. Right? <laughs> that was I a mean, moment you, where everyone was do like, that, well, right? there you go. <laughs> yeah. As a defense lawyer, what do you do with that? You sit and kind of cringe in the seat. I mean, it, it is what it is. You can't change that. Right. Um, you know, Madoff was a Ponzi. Madoff didn't invest any money anywhere. He just took money from people, said he was investing it, kept it in a bank account. And then when people needed withdrawals, he'd take, you know, new new investor money and give it back to the, the original investors. Um one could look at this as being a Ponzi scheme too, because if you think about it, if I put crypto in there, right, and then I needed to withdraw it, if there's an eight or nine billion dollar gap, and I'm I'm withdrawing, whose crypto am I getting? Is mine the money that was spent on frivolous investments or airplanes or you know signage at, at arenas um, or campaign contributions to to people, or is my money coming in from the next person that put more crypto in the next day? Now, they didn't bring that up at the trial because they didn't want to confuse it, and I don't think they needed to, but there are similarities there. The other thing I think that's really interesting is both of these guys, you know, Bernie Madoff's deceased at this point, but both of these guys were great storytellers. Or yes. were they great storytellers or were they great con men, right? And and mm. SBF, you know, went on on media all over the place talking about what a great uh, storyteller he was, and and that that was his, he he wanted to be the the Steve Jobs of the crypto world, I think. Um, and um, so you know, are they are they great storytellers, or were they in the end just just great con men that eventually you know the, the curtain uh, was pulled back on their con? So much of those media interviews played out in the the trial. I mean, I think we were all wondering after he started to see that everything was coming down and an indictment. It was likely, and, and even after the indictment came down, I mean, he was out there talking to the media and tweeting. And I remember sitting there every time you get an alert. Oh my goodness, Sam Bingman Fried is talking again. I'm wondering, wow, aren't people listening and watching? And prosecutors are are essentially waiting for him to hand them a way to use his words against him. And that's exactly how we've seen it play out. I think potentially that hubris maybe or, or perhaps just a thousand percent confidence that one has to have when you are an entrepreneur uh, led him to believe that that storytelling was going to be what saved him which brings me to my next question because you know we we were all wondering all right is he going to testify does he need to testify should he uh, but it, it kind of comes back to that storytelling point I, I think he really felt like, he needed to get it out there and maybe that that was going to make the difference with the jury. Now it might have, right? We, we don't have the verdict yeah. yet, but what was I mean, your reaction when you saw that he was testifying? I mean, how does that play out in, in trials that you've testified at? Yeah, typically it, it doesn't play out very well. Let's put it that way. Let me start with that. I wasn't surprised. I think uh, SBF thinks he's the smartest guy in the room and continues to this day to think so. I think he thinks he's smarter than, than his lawyers. I'm sure his lawyers told him this is not a good idea to get on the stand, but it's, you know, it's, it's his right as a, as a defendant to, to get up and face his accusers and, and defend himself under the Constitution. He has that right. Um, but a guy like that, that, that is a loose cannon, um, is really hard to control on the stand. And, and the contrast from, and, and then you risk the contrast what played out from when he testified on direct for the defense and everything was calm. It was all scripted out. He could, he knew the answers. They had practiced many times, I'm sure. Right. To contrast that with when he's being cross-examined by the, the, the assistant U.S. attorney 
uh, and it's not scripted out. And that's a stark contrast for the jury. That's a huge risk. Now, again, the lawyers may have no choice but to put him on at that point because he demanded to go on. They might have also felt, the, you know, what do they have to lose at this point? The case was going so poorly for them that they figured, hey, it's a Hail Mary. Let's just throw it up there and see what happens. But I can tell you, in most of the criminal cases I've been on, when we huddle up right before that point where the defendant's going to take the stand, 99% of the, the advice is don't get on the stand. Um, it's not going to help you. And they want to tell their story. I mean, it's a natural thing. I want to get up there and, and, and they think they're innocent. You know, they've, they've woven themselves into this into this uh, mindset that they didn't do anything wrong. Um, but it's I've never seen it play out in, in a good way. Let's put it that way. Well, we are going to see how this one plays out very soon. The jury is expected to get the case uh, at some point tomorrow. As with most things in this case, everything is taking it longer than expected. Uh, but but final question for you, Bruce. Uh, it sounds like you think he's going to get convicted. Uh, do you think he gets convicted on all the charges? Do you think that uh, if he does get convicted, the judge may look to make an example of him when it comes to sentencing? Because this is kind of this first big crypto case. I mean, Madoff right. got, what, 150 years? I mean, it, obviously, yep. he, was, he was older. Um, but kind of what's your take on that? Yeah, and, and that was a much more lenient judge, um, I, I think, um, it, uh, that sentence Madoff. Uh, judge Kaplan is a tough judge. Um, I think that. that <laughs> yeah, I mean, he rules that courtroom with a tight hand. I've been before, been in front of him, uh, and, and rightly so. He, he controls the courtroom. Um, I think that uh, from the standpoint of being convicted on all charges, look, I sat on a jury myself last year, which was very interesting after having been an expert in so many cases. And the deliberation started Friday at about 1 p.m. And Friday at three, we had a, a verdict. You know, it wasn't a complicated case, but it was all about credibility. And there was some horse trading that went on. And I think you'll see if there's one or two jurors that that are holding out, so to speak, the other jurors may throw a bone and say, well, let's not, you know, vote to convict on, on this uh, count. Let's get them on everything else. If you're unsure of that, Okay, we'll give you that, and and they and they may horse trade and trade off, which they're allowed to do inside the inside the jury room. I think if he's convicted, Judge Kaplan's going to make make an example of him. He's he's a young guy. The hubris, the amount of of interviews he gave after the collapse, I think will will damage uh, his credibility. Uh, and and um, you know he hasn't shown any remorse that I've seen. Uh, and I think the judge is going to take that into consideration at, at you know at sentencing. He can depart upward from the sentencing guidelines. He can depart downward. But this is a tough judge. I wouldn't want to be a criminal defendant sitting in that courtroom waiting to be sentenced. Um, he faces a lot of time in prison, and I think he's going to end up getting a lot of time. Yeah, Judge Kaplan certainly ha has been a tough judge. But uh, it's, you know, he, he tested his patience leading up to this with everything that he was doing, got his bail revoked, you know, allegedly yeah. trying to intimidate witnesses. So it's it's been kind of a long road to get to this point where I can imagine Judge Kaplan is is just incredibly frustrated. And then especially, you know, during that his testimony, he kept going around and around. And finally, he just said, just answer the question. Right. And you could hear the frustration in his voice uh, that I think a lot of people and probably jurors also were feeling in that moment. Well, Bruce, thank you uh, so much. I really appreciate your insights, uh, the comparison to the Madoff trial and, and just trying to break down for us such a complicated 
way of, of how all of this evidence came together. To your point, we're going to see what happens, uh, but there's also a March trial. So we'll be doing this all again exactly. <laughs> in March potentially. But thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. All right. Have a good day, Kelly. Good speaking to you. Okay, folks, that does it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe and tune into future episodes. We drop every Monday and Wednesday. Our breakdown of closings will continue next episode. And we could even have a verdict by that point. You heard Bruce. Sometimes it only takes a couple of hours and some willing jurors to do a little bit of horse trading. So make sure to tune in. That's all for now. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear Podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.